Hi everybody, I'm Sess Busby, editor of Flying Solo. Welcome to our weekly podcast where we step inside the minds and lives of soloists and small business owners. Today's guest is Michael McQueen. Michael is a social researcher and trend forecaster and best-selling author. His new book, Mind Stuck, Mastering the Art of Changing Minds, reveals everything you've ever wanted to know about the art of persuasion. So if you want to find out how to influence other people without that icky feeling, now's your chance. Michael, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Lovely to chat. Excellent. So glad to have you here. Now, um, your new book, Mindstruck, you're talking all about the nature of the human mind, how it influences decision-making, the art of persuasion, etc. Can you explain a little bit between the difference between an inquiring mind and an instinctive mind? Yeah, it's, it's such a good question. So uh, the idea behind, I mean, that sort of the title really speaks to it. So that's the idea of what, what makes us mind stuck, you know, what causes us to get fixed in certain ways of thinking, ways of operating that often don't actually, um, they don't work to our benefit. They often work against us. And this is the question, this difference between the two minds that we have has really been at the core of the research that went into this book is this question of why don't people change even when they want to, and even when they know they should, you know, and we all see that in ourselves in other people, that nature of stubbornness. So the two minds that I unpack in mind stuck are these two minds that, that really define how we process information and arrive at points of decision. So the first mind is the inquiry mind, which is you know, at the front of our brain, the part of the frontal lobe. It is typically the part of our brain that's very methodical, very linear, very rational, very reasonable. Now, we would like to think we use that one most. The truth is, and this is according to some research out of a, a, a researcher at Yale named Zoe Chance, she'd suggest we only use that inquiry mind for 5 to 10% of the decisions we make and the judgments we form. I know, so not not heaps. <laughs> um, and, and yet we'd love to think, wouldn't we, that as humans, humans are basically reasonable and rational. And if, you, and if you just give humans the right evidence and enough information, they'll arrive at a reasonable and rational conclusion. That's not the case because we don't use this inquiry in mind much, partly because it's slow. It's hard to use. It takes a lot of effort to use. It's self, you know, it takes self-discipline. So what do we defer to? We defer to another part of our brain I call the instinctive mind. The instinctive mind is... Yeah, sitting near the top of the brainstem, it's typically associated with a part of our brain called the limbic system. So it's the fight and flight reflexes. It's the part of our brain that processes emotion. It's very tribal. Um, But also one of the things it does is it keeps us safe. So it means, you know, it it identifies patterns or threats really fast and then reacts. It sort of jumps to conclusions. The problem is it does the same thing with, uh, with psychological threats as it does to physical threats. So if we get exposed to an idea or information or even really reliable data that contradicts or threatens something we've decided is true, our instinctive response is not to open up, but to double down and to become stubborn and to go into either denial or defensiveness. And this is where stubbornness lies for so many of us. And this is why it matters for us personally, but also to make sure as we're engaging with our teams, we're actually trying to change the right mind. So the instinctive mind, not the inquiring one. Yeah, that's so interesting that... um that fight, fright, fleet, freeze response could be impacting all of our choices so much. In terms of the psychology of that and and how it goes into our decision makings, what are some some ways that we can retrain our brain in a way so that we aren't constantly focusing on that instinctive response and we are 
putting more thought into our choices. But then also, I guess there is a, a reason that that instinctive mind is there. And sometimes that instinctive mind could be giving us the best choice. It does. Yes. I feel like in Malcolm Gladwell's book, Blink, that was the whole you know, thesis. That sometimes those instinctive responses are the right ones. And you know, one of the things I look at in the book is this idea that there's the mind is bigger than the brain which is interesting even even in itself as a thought we often think of like if i talk about someone's mind they you think about their brain and we see those things as synonymous but actually your instinctive mind the mind is bigger than just the brain it takes into things like it takes into account things like your gut and your heart you know that, that instinctive bodily sense that something's right or wrong and we've all had that intuitive sense when you just know something's right or wrong but you don't know why you just know that you know. And so sometimes that can be a gift. And anyone in business can you know, think of times when they ignored their intuition and they paid a hefty price. So like, I should have listened to my gut. Um, and so this is not to say that the instinctive mind is always wrong. In fact, often it's right. The trick is we need to um, have another layer of decision-making, things that make us pause and go, what's making me assume this is the case? What are the experiences I've had that have informed this sense of certainty I've got? Is this an, a, a reasonable response or not? Um, in fact, one of the questions I, I, or one of the things I give in the book, if you've got a situation when you're, you know, if maybe you're in, in difficult discussions with someone else and it's you versus them and every instinct in you wants to fight and battle and argue, even if deep down you think maybe what they're saying is a little bit true. One of the things I challenge people to, to look at in the book is this idea of what's the third story. So if you had to tell the story of what's happening right now from a third person's experience, someone who's not involved in the discussion back and forth, how would they describe this? And it forces you to step back for a moment and not think about everything as being us versus them, me versus you. But there's it's, it's actually a multifaceted issue because most of life is that it's complex and having things like that just force us to stop and go is there a different way to see this have i considered every um, every perspective before i jump to a conclusion before my instinctive mind does what it does but best which is be impulsive so there's things like that then it can be as simple as honestly have a really good sleep now one of the things we've discovered and the, the research looks at this is when the brain is fatigued, it doesn't make great decisions. And so the more we can stop and just take a take a beat, pause, even literally sleep on it and think about, you know, make a decision tomorrow morning. Don't respond to that email now. Don't respond to that Facebook or Instagram post now. Stop, pause. Your instinctive mind will want to react, but sometimes it's not the most mature response. So there's just some simple tips we can do to try and you know, think well and hopefully encourage others to think well also. Another thing that I found quite interesting was this assumption that smart people will make great decisions. But in fact, you're suggesting that smart people are actually more prone to being illogical than any of us. <laughs> it is interesting. Hey, so this has come from a, a, a number of researchers who their main focus area is conspiracy belief, because you would assume that, you know, people who are you know, conspiracy theorists might be more gullible than the average person. And actually, that's not true. Like the number of highly intelligent people, and you can probably think of people who fit this bill, I certainly can, highly intelligent who've sort of gone down the rabbit hole. And really, and this is just maybe in one area of life, there's a sense of delusion or denial. You think, well, how can someone so smart subscribe to that sort of a belief or that sort of idea? And it's because often people who are highly intelligent have the cognitive skills to argue themselves into a corner. And to bed in their ideas, um, and so 
the, some of the very skills that can make you smart can actually make you less smart if you allow those things to, to make you stubborn rather than actually step back and ask questions. And this is not ideological too. We often think that, you know, there's often this, you know, the, the, the right, the conservatives, they're more likely to be conspiracy theorists. And you tend to see that play out as a trope. Actually, the evidence is that it's, it's all sides of the political divide. It's all, um, you know, it's all levels of intelligence. It's just that typically we approach the world the way we want it to be. And therefore, we see what we expect to see rather than what is actually there. And that's what our instinctive minds do well. And I think the encouragement I'd give to any listeners is you know, when you have those moments where you want to react impulsively, I had this great insight from Andy Stanley, who's a leadership expert in the States. And he said, you know, actions speak louder than words, but our reactions speak louder than both. And so when you have a disproportionately strong reaction to an idea or information and you can't even hear it, much less consider that information or that idea. Just stop, step back and go, what part of my identity or what part of my belief system is wrapped up in this perspective that actually I may need to just be humble enough to reconsider? Mm. Where do you think that, that stubbornness comes from? Well, I think it's it's inbuilt in humans. I think that that natural tendency, and this is, goes to those sort of the very fight and flight type reflexes. So our instinctive mind will naturally do this. I think the reality is now this has been exacerbated for a number of reasons in modern times. The first is, you know, we've never been expected to make up our minds about so many things so quickly and with access to to so much information. And that sense of overwhelm, you know, sort of leads to obstinance. It's like there's just too much to take on board. I can't can't listen to all the perspectives, all the information, read all the posts, all the online reviews – so I'm just going to defer to what feels right because, you know, I, just, I don't have the capacity to think about every issue that's confronting me. So there's that sense of overwhelm. But I think also social media feeds into this. And we, we've heard so much about echo chambers in the last few years. And they are a thing. Like, you know, the, the social media algorithms tend to spit back to us what we already agree with because, you know, we, we like to read what we already think is true. And there's plenty of evidence that speaks to that. And that's not just not on social media, but... You know, in terms of you know, articles read in newspapers or online, we tend to gravitate towards stuff that confirms what we've decided is already true. We, and we, we tend to read those article pieces or <clears throat> watch those videos for longer. And we think we're being open-minded, but actually what we're doing is we're just selectively choosing what it is we want to listen to. Now, algorithms are great at doing that on steroids because they just serve up to you everything you think is already the case. And then social proof kicks in and you think, well, everyone else seems to agree with me because everyone else that I know who's in my little echo chambers, seeing, seeing the same things, posting the same stuff, commenting on the same things. And so we can then, I mean, that, that reinforces a stubbornness. It's like, well, if I already thought this is true, everyone who I think is smart, because they all think like me, they all seem to think it's true. It must be true. And so you can see there how stubbornness begins to form in a way that probably didn't exist 10 to 15 years ago. So how do we curb that myopic behaviour where... <laughs> We just have this very blinkered view of everything. Well, the first thing is trying to deliberately expose yourself to information or ideas that you wouldn't normally and to people that you wouldn't normally listen to and force yourself because it requires you to force yourself to literally have dissenting views in your world. You know, we all love you know, the, the comfort of, you know, certainty and people around us and information and ideas and books that just confirm what we believe to be true. When was the last time you read something that you genuinely, you riled against, you thought was um, baseless, ridiculous, 
heretical, whatever it is. You know, when was the last time you genuinely read something you thought, <laughs> I don't, I don't like this. I, I don't want this to be true. I open the Murdoch press. <laughs> <laughs> but truly, I mean, that's the thing. Hey, like, do, do you sit with that stuff long enough to go, okay, I don't have to agree this is true, but have I taken long enough to listen? to try and understand things from a different perspective. Because, I mean, life, and we all know this, life is so complex. And in our businesses, it's the same. We, you know, If we get people around us who've all got the same perspective or the same ideas, if you're not hearing enough dissenting views in a team, then you're probably not thinking about an idea with enough rigor, with, with enough thoughtfulness. And so there's a lot to be said for just creating in a team, in a, in a work environment, much just in our lives generally, space for dissenting views and as uncomfortable as that can be because it requires humility on our part to stop and rethink and be open to ideas that that we wouldn't otherwise not assume would be true that's when we think well so i would just say when was the last time you were genuinely exposed to something that you considered long enough to at least to consider there was a perspective there you hadn't thought of before even if at first you might bristle against it Mm. Yeah, because there's nothing wrong with um, disagreeing with someone as long as you're not, you know, offensive about it. <laughs> that's exactly it. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that I look at in the book a lot is this idea of how do you disagree constructively? I, I think we've lost that skill in the last few years in many ways. And that's, I mean, that's in society, within our families, within our relationships, but even in our businesses. You know, one of the things you tend to see is when people are stubborn, and then someone they engage with has a different view to them rather than genuinely listening and having a posture of openness. And I had this beautiful quote recently um, from Jean Hoffman who said, and she said, an enemy is someone whose story we haven't yet heard. And I, like, I love that, that idea of have you actually taken long enough to really listen to the people who you might see as the enemy or who've got really different views. Um, and I think we do need to recapture that skill of of disagreeing without being disagreeable, you know, being genuinely open to hearing other people. It doesn't mean we have to endorse or accept everything they say or every perspective they hold, but we might just learn something. And also, I think if we want to persuade others, and most of this book is not just about thinking well, that's a big part of it, but how do you persuade other people? One of the key on-ramps to changing someone else's mind is listening because people who are listened to are more likely to listen. You know, if you've got people in your team or in your world you're trying to influence or persuade, have you actually taken the time to hear their perspective first? Or do you go into every conversation with, you know, you've got your arguments locked down, you know what you're going to say, you know how you're going to say, it. you've got your data all ready to go, but have you actually taken the time to listen first? And I think that disagreeing well requires that two-way street. It's more of a dance rather than a battle. Mm. And what about for our business-owning listeners as well? When we talk about persuasion, I mean, mm. there's probably some kind of icky hangovers of, of uh, you know, coercion yeah, <laughs> from yeah. from uh, from you know the last century and i yep. think people are very wary of that kind of persuasion what what are you talking about when you're talking about methods of persuasion i think the goal is and, and this is where you can tend to take you know timeless principles are, are neutral so you can take them one way or the other you can use them for good or for ill and so if you use them for good ideally persuasion is all about helping another person to grow and think in a more accurate and liberating and productive way. And so helping them not be mind stuck. And that, that's not just for other people, but also how do you apply that to yourself too? Whereas the difference between persuasion, healthy persuasion and manipulation is manipulation is using often the same techniques, but with your benefit in mind and often to, to either create or assert power and control over the other. Um, and the problem with that is, I mean, actually, if you take it to its logical conclusion, 
exerting power and control and coercion actually doesn't work in the long term. It only works as long as people are afraid of you or as long as you're incentivizing them to do as you expect. Um, it's like that Dale Carnegie quote that someone who's convinced against their will is of the same opinion still. Like they actually haven't changed their thinking at all. And so a lot of the book is looking at how to do this ethically. And there is a fine line here because some of the tools I look at, and I really try and steer clear of anything that, that has that icky vibe of um, manipulating other people emotionally or manipulating their behaviors. But there's some really great um, research. In fact, some of the stuff I really enjoyed getting, you know, getting my teeth into for this book was produced by Paul Zak. And Paul Zak is a neuroeconomist neuro based over in the States. And he's become a close um, colleague and friend over the last little while. And what I've liked about Paul's work is he looks at what is it that actually builds trust between individuals? Because until you've got trust, minds will not change. People will not be open to what you're trying to communicate to them or get through to them. And so Paul looks at the role that oxytocin plays, which is the body's social bonding hormone. And so his research for decades looked at what is that when you're engaging with someone else that releases that oxytocin, that sense of connection, what, whereas what are the things we, that we often do that break those bonds of trust and affinity? And some of it's about being really vulnerable and really authentic and really honest. Like, do you actually engage with other people with your guard down and acknowledging you don't have all the answers? And, you know, even though this is your particular view, you know, there's possibly, it's possibly the stuff that you've missed or haven't considered. Like going into a conversation with that sense of openness is one of the best things we can do to you know, disarm somebody else. Another thing he talks about is the importance of synchronizing with the other person. So that can be as much as syncing your energy or your vibe with the person you're trying to persuade, but also physicality comes into play here. And you know, I've heard over the years, you know, some of that sort of awkward advice, really, that idea of, you know, if you're sitting down with someone trying to you know, connect with them, if they cross their legs, you cross your legs. If they scratch their ear, you scratch your ear. And I'm like, to me, it just feels a little bit contrived and, and, and a little bit manipulative. And so I was chatting with Paul recently and I said, so how do you do that synchronization thing without it being awkward or contrived? And I loved what he said. He said in the last few years, what they've discovered is the power of literally just going for a walk with someone. Because if you get outside the boardroom or away from the coffee table or wherever it is for a high stakes conversation, you just go for a walk with another individual. As you walk alongside someone else, you will naturally get into step with them. You'll start to match their cadence. That synchronization means a literal and unconscious bond forms between you. And that's often when you can connect with that person, ideally then get your message across and influence or impact them. So there's lots of simple te techniques and, and tips for how to do this, but that's that's one of the ones and I've seen it work with clients where just going for a walk can make all the difference in terms of how persuasive you are with the people you're trying to get through to. Mm. So for small business owners, um, is it that authenticity and that trust, is that what they need to be focusing on when when they're trying to maximize their persuasive efforts with their customers. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's, that's certainly the first thing. I mean, because until you've got that, and this goes back to what Aristotle talked about, you know, 2,400 years ago, that the foundations for influencing others were logos, pathos, and ethos. And so logos was the logical stuff, which we tend to do pretty well. We've done that well for centuries, trying to convince through evidence and logic, even though it actually doesn't do all the heavy lifting. Pathos is trying to get through to the emotions, whereas ethos is the one we often overlook. And that was that was about credibility and trust and affinity. And so if you go back to even that foundational stuff around influence and rhetoric, that's the piece we really need to start with. If we're trying to influence our teams, to start with trust and affinity. But it is more than that. And there's some really simple techniques I, I go through in the book around how do you try and shift someone's frame of reference? Because often persuasion happens when people say, you know what? 
I'd never thought of it like that before. I'd never seen things from that perspective. And, and one of the tools I give in the book is um, something I refer to as the rate and reflect process. And I learned this from a researcher named Michael Pantalon, who's been using this approach in a medical context for years to address often problematic and, and self-harming behaviours around alcohol and drug use. And so the way it works is you ask two specific questions in a specific order. So the first question you ask is, now let's say you're dealing with a staff member and you'd like them to consider doing things in a different way or consider a different perspective. The first question is, okay, from a scale of one to 10, how likely would you be to, and then fill in the blanks. But the second question is the key one, because then you say, okay, I'm just curious, how come you didn't give a lower number? And typically, if you're dealing with a staff member who's stubborn, you ask them to rate from one to 10 how willing or open they are to whatever it is you're suggesting, and they'll give like a two or a three. But when you ask the question, how come you didn't give a lower number, it flips the entire conversation, because now the focus isn't on why all the reasons I don't want to do what you're suggesting. It's on the reasons why actually deep down part of me, even if it's a small part of me, thinks there could be value. Start there because that's the point of commonality. Rather than it become a battle, you start with, okay, what do we share in common and how do we zero in on actually and, and expand on that stuff? Because um, otherwise we go into these discussions trying to persuade other people and it becomes a battle from the very outset. Mm. So what about our customers though? So we've kind of talked a bit how you would you would um, use that persuasive piece with your your team members, but what about our customers? And should we be appealing to that instinctive mind or that inquiry mind when we're kind of marketing to our, our customers? Yeah, so definitely the instinctive mind first. Because what happens is if you appeal to the inquiry mind, essentially what you instantly engage people in is a decision that will be now it will not involve emotions. They'll be evaluating your product, your service, your idea, often in ways that you know, it's just about the numbers and the data. Whereas if you start with instinctive mind and it's all about appealing to emotion, how would this feel? How does this fit with who you are as a person? Then And then after they've made a decision with their instinctive mind as to why this feels like the right thing and they feel on board and there's that sense of trust, then you need to give them the logic, the evidence, the data, the product disclosure sheet, the, the, the statistics that help them back up the decision they've already made instinctively or emotionally. But you need to start with the instinctive mind. But if you're dealing with customers, I mean, one of the best things you can do, and going back to what we talked about before, is just be real. Just be authentic, but also that sense of self-deprecation. And I find, you know, for instance, in my context, if I'm speaking with clients, sometimes the best thing you can do is don't, don't try and upsell, try and unsell. Like if you're talking to a client and you say, you know what, I don't, I don't know if this will be the right thing for you. It may not be. It's not the right thing for everyone, blah, blah, blah. It's almost like by taking it away from them. And you've probably noticed this yourself. Instantly, they jump onto the, almost the sense of, okay, well, why, why they actually think it's a good idea. And they start to almost sell themselves in the idea because you take it away from them. Whereas the harder you push, the more evidence, the more, the more persuasion you give, the more they, they find reasons to, to poke holes in your argument or your sales pitch. So there are things you can do there. The other thing that can be really helpful is just asking people for their advice and their input. So if you ask for people to, to give you advice or feedback or, or ideas, there's some really interesting research about the fact that by asking people for a favor is one of the best things you can do to win favor. Because by asking for a favour, you make that other person feel valuable, important. Um, you, you, you essentially speak to their ego and their need to be valuable. Um, and so there's something about as human beings, we love to be helpful to others. And it, it, it releases something in us that actually makes us far more open to the person we're helping. Can um, stop some of that resistance from surfacing as well. Yeah, that's perhaps. right. Yep. So one of the other things that uh, I was reading was you 
think that humans are not actually afraid of change. It's that we're afraid of loss. Can you <laughs> yeah. dive into that a little bit? It's interesting, isn't it? So we've been told this for so long that we often just, we, it's, we assume it's true, that you know, humans are just instinctively afraid of change. And it's actually not true. And I mean, I thought this for years. I remember saying this. I've written about this in books over the years. And yet what we've discovered in the last couple of years from a neuroscience perspective is that it's not change we're afraid of, but loss. And so it's the loss of things like certainty or pride or power or dignity. So whenever you're asking someone to change and it involves the potential for them to lose one of those things, they'll dig their heels in, even if they think what you're suggesting is actually a really good idea because they'll resist it because it, it cuts across their agency, their autonomy. And so the best way to make people open to, to change or to persuasion or a different way of doing things is to make them feel like they are in the driver's seat. Um, yeah, she, Sheena Iyengar, who's a researcher at Columbia University, puts it well. She says, our brains equate choice with having control. The moment we feel we haven't got agency or autonomy, we will resist, we'll dig our heels in, even if we deep down know that what's being suggested is a good thing. And so there are ways you can do that in terms of giving people choice, like maybe it's two or three options to choose from rather than just the one thing you'd like them to do. And I mean, we, we do this with our toddlers and our kids at home, but the truth is the same stuff works with people in your team. You know, rather than saying, I'd like you to do this, give them two or three options, let them choose. That sense of once people feel they've got some degree of agency, they're far more open. <laughs> Give them the carrot and the biscuit. (laughs) (laughs) You also mentioned that uh, we kind of favour comfort and convenience over discomfort and doubt. So Mm. can you explain a little for small business owners that are trying to perhaps, you know, encourage their team onto a new journey, how they can embrace that discomfort to, you know, follow the, the change and the innovation? It's a good point. So I think the first thing is we need to realise, just by acknowledging that that's the case for people is, is half the challenge. So if you're just like, I, I know this is scary, I know this is new, you know, just just calling that out can be really, really effective because um, it just helps people feel seen and heard. But also, how do you try and frame what you're suggesting, a new way of doing things or whatever, as as a an extension of what they've done in the past, that it's actually not that different. It's just we're doing things in a slightly different way. The more you can show that this is, something that we've done previously and that's been work that's worked and been safe and reliable and predictable but we're just going to extend it and make it a bit better a bit a, a little bit improved rather than a complete break with the past something that's completely new and foreign the more likely people will be to be okay I, I can i feel like i can do this without losing a sense of my certainty and self and um, that's tricky but it can be simple as using the same sort of names and the same sort of labels the same terminology the same you know, group uh, group labels or product labels, you know, things that we use in our businesses every day. If you can use enough that is familiar and apply it to the new, it'll just reduce that sense of uncertainty. Hmm. Thank you, Michael. Thanks so much for chatting today. It's been a real so pleasure welcome. talking to you. I'm going to let you chuff off because I yes, know I you've got to get to your keynote. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. It was so lovely to chat. Thank you for making the time. And um, yeah. I hope that is helpful for people. Yes. Thank you again. You're welcome. Enjoy the day. Thank you.